I'm going to read from 2 Samuel 18, about 18 verses. I was reading this week that a, an instructor, a professor of writing at Columbia University in New York City, in teaching his scholars the art of writing, read to them this entire chapter, the 18th chapter of 2 Samuel, and said of it that it was a perfect example of how to tell a story. It's tremendous prose. Now, I'm not going to read it in the King James. I will read it in the Living Bible. Chapter 18 of 2 Samuel. David now appointed regimental colonels and company commanders over his troops. A third were placed under Joab's brother, Abishai, and a third under Ittai, the Gittite. The king planned to lead the army himself, but his men objected strongly. You must not do it, they said, for if we have to turn and run, and half of us die, it will make no difference to them. They will be looking only for you. You are worth 10,000 of us, and it is better that you stay here in the city and send us help if we need it. Well, whatever you think best, the king finally replied. So he stood at the gate of the city as all the troops passed by, and the king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittiah, For my sake, deal gently with young Absalom. And all the troops heard the king give him this charge. So the battle began in the forest of Ephraim and the Israeli troops were beaten back by David's men. There was a great slaughter, and 20,000 men laid down their lives that day. The battle raged all across the countryside, and more men disappeared in the forest than were killed. During the battle, Absalom came upon some of David's men, and as he fled on his mule, it went beneath the thick boughs of a great oak tree, and his hair caught in the branches. His mule went on and left him dangling in the air, and one of David's men saw him and told Joab. What, you saw him there and you did not kill him, Joab demanded. I would have rewarded you handsomely and made you a commissioned officer. For a million dollars I would not do it, the man replied. We all heard what the king said to you and to Abishai and to Atai. For my sake, please do not harm young Absalom. If I had betrayed the king by killing his son, the king would certainly find it out, and you yourself would be the first to accuse me. Enough of this nonsense, Joab said. And then he took three daggers and plunged them into the heart of Absalom as he dangled alive from the oak. Ten of Joab's young armor-bearers then surrounded Absalom and finished him off. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and his men returned from chasing the army of Israel. They threw Absalom's body into a deep pit in the forest and piled a great heap of stones over it, and the army of Israel fled to their homes. Absalom had built a monument to himself in the king's valley, for he said, I have no sons to carry on my name, and it is called Absalom's monument still to this day. Then Zadok, son Ahimaaz, said, Let me run to King David with the good news that the Lord has saved him from his enemy, Absalom. No, Joab told him, it would not be good news to the king that his son is dead. You can be my messenger some other time. Then Joab said to a man from Cush, go tell the king what you have seen. The man bowed and ran off. But Ahimaaz pleaded with Joab, please let me go too. 
No, we don't need you now, my boy, replied Joab. There's no further news to send. Yes, but let me go anyway, he begged. And Joab finally said, all right, go ahead. Then Amaz took a shortcut across the plain and got there ahead of the man from Cush. David was sitting at the gate of the city. The watchman climbed the stairs to his post at the top of the wall and saw a lone man running towards him. He shouted the news to David, and the king replied, if he is alone, he has news. As the messenger came closer, the watchman saw another man running towards them, and he shouted down, here comes another runner. And the king replied, he will have more news. The first man looks like a Himaz, the son of Zadok, the watchman said. He, has good, he is a good man and comes with good news, the king replied. Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, All's well! He bowed low with his face to the ground and said, Blessed be the Lord your God who has destroyed the rebels who dared to stand against you. What of young Absalom? the king demanded. Is he all right? When Joab told me to come, there was a lot of shouting. I don't know what was happening, Ahimaaz answered. Wait here, the king told him, so Ahimaaz stepped aside. Then the man from Cush arrived and said, I have good news for my lord the king. Today Jehovah has rescued you from all of those who rebelled against you. What about young Absalom? Is he all right, the king demanded. And the man replied, May all your enemies be as that young man is. Then the king broke into tears. He went up to his room over the gate, crying as he went. Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would God that I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. May God bless to us an understanding of his word. For the benefit of those of you who are visitors in our midst, let me say that for some Sundays now, we have been simply going over some of the grand old stories in the Old Testament looking at some of the great Bible characters there and the trials that they face. Last week we looked at David, David in his youth. When we are young, we are sometimes tried by reason of being pushed up against circumstances that could overwhelm us and engulf us and cause us to sink. But we saw in this little man, David, a little shepherd boy, that when he came out with a firm, strong faith in God, that he could look into the face of a mighty, powerful adversary, even the giant Goliath. And armed with that faith in God, in no weapon more powerful than a shepherd's swing, he slew Goliath. And this is one of the great stories of the Bible in its truth. And it has always been for us something to instruct us that in the face of great adversaries, if we are true to God, the feeblest weapon can be blessed of God and made to be a powerful weapon. And all of us are faced with adversaries, giants of despair, giants of frustration, giants of failure that come. And here today, we see David thinking about his virtues as well as his vices. In virtues, David, first of all, was a man of faith. This was his strongest point. He was a person who had a great living faith in God, rough and crude and earthy. And yet with all of this, an implicit trust in God. 
This seeps through all of his psalms. If you read his psalms and study them carefully, you will find in them a rigorous honesty about them as he lays bare his soul before God. When he is depressed, he says, Oh, that I had wings like a dove, that I might fly away and be at rest. When he is tormented by his enemies, he is not afraid even to offer unto God a prayer of imprecation against them. The one difference between David and you and me is that David seeks to be honest and not to fake it nor to talk beyond what his experience really is. And in David's life there is much of great beauty to behold. In his vices the scriptures paint him exactly as he is. And I am sure that if we had been writing the history of David, every last one of us would have cut out the part that has to do with his gross iniquity and wickedness when he sinned with Bathsheba. Of course, in this modern day of open contract marriages or no marriage at all, when adultery is simply laughed at by a great many people and some inside the church, I'm sure that the sin of David here must not be looked upon as seriously as that old prophet of God, Nathan, looked upon it at that time. And of all the preachers that ever lived upon the face of the earth outside of Jesus of Nazareth himself, there surely has never been another preacher like Nathan. And when I think of all of my empty-headed babblings and my sloven presentation that I bring to church Sunday after Sunday, I am condemned to the dirt when I look at Nathan. For Nathan was a preacher of the rarest excellence. Nathan was a man who could come in to preach to his congregation and pull them up close and have them right along with him. And then suddenly he lays bare the sword of God and opens their whole conscience and soul before them. And so it is all recorded for us. David in his great faith and in his great patience in dealing with the intolerable, insane, mad jealousy of Saul who slung his javelins at him to kill him. And yet David could sneak up and look at his great enemy and slice away a part of the tunic and place it there beside him to let him know that in the night he could have killed him and yet he did not do it. Jealousy is as cruel as the grave, says the Proverbs, and certainly it is. And now then, David has finally become king, and Saul is dead, and all of the divisions about Saul's household are put to an end, and David reigns in great splendor in his palace in Jerusalem. And there, with all of the benefits of worship in that great place, there comes a time, and the 11th chapter of 2 Samuel depicts it for you, in the spring of the year when the kings go forth to battle and David, the great warrior of God who is now in his middle years and takes everything with a little salt and is no more shocked by anything and has much of this world's goods, David sends his warriors forth, but he stays behind in Jerusalem. And then there comes that evening when he walks upon his roof and cannot sleep and cast his eyes upon a woman beautiful to look upon as she is washing herself and sins for her and she comes to him and he lays with her and then later she sends word I am with child and then David trying to cover up his adulterous relationship 
sends to Joab, his great general, and says, send this man Uriah back here to me. For the woman Bathsheba was Uriah's wife. And Uriah comes home, but he does not go to his own house, and David cannot cover up his sin. David tries to get Uriah drunk, but still it does not work. And finally, David resorts as one sin always leads to another sin. And no sin ever hurts just the person who sins, but always others. David, having committed adultery, having sent for Uriah and made him drunk and tried to cover it up, now sends Uriah back to battle, carrying in his hand his own death warrant. David tells his commanding general, Joab, to set Uriah out into the forefront of the battle, a place where valiant men are to be. Put him up next to the wall of the city that is being besieged at Reba. And then retire, withdraw from him, and let him be killed. And Joab, who carries out David's orders to the very letter, sends back his cynical reply in the dispatches from the battlefield and tells of Uriah's death. But right at the end of the 11th chapter of 2 Samuel is one sentence that must always ring in the ears of any person who tries to transgress against God. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord, and the Lord sent Nathan unto David. Twelve months had gone by. David had sat upon the throne of judgment and had dispatched case after case that came before him, sodden to the eyes in immorality and injustice himself in his own internal hypocrisy. God sends Nathan. Nathan the preacher that I described a moment ago who pulls David in close with his story about the stranger who came and took one man's little ewe lamb that had been so loved and slew it instead of taking one of his own great flocks and herds. And David said that man will die. He will restore it fourfold. And Nathan said, Thou art the man. And then Nathan begins to tear into David in one of the greatest speeches that ever any preacher gave. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel. I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. I gave thee thy master's house, thy master's wives. I gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. Why have you done this thing and despised the commandment of God and done this evil in his sight? And then let it always be said to David's everlasting credit that David did not walk out of the church and begin lies about the preacher, that David did not seek out how to get him fired, but David fell down upon his knees and said, I have sinned against God. And Nathan brought forth that word of mercy. The Lord has put away your sin. But, said the prophet, the sword will not depart from your household 
and that child will die. David, David covered with his own sins, goes into the place of worship, and though he wears the robes of royalty, has upon his forehead ashes, and is bowed low into the dirt, and he, aching with the pain of his own sin, mutters that psalm which you read a moment ago, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. Read it, and whenever you read it, read it with reverence, and know how God can deliver a sinner such as David, or a sinner such as you, or a sinner such as me. David sobbed out that prayer to God, and then the evil fruits of the sin which he had committed began to take root. There comes this young man who had been the apple of his eye. David lived in a time of polygamy, and polygamy is just another word for dunghill. Because with all of the concubines and all of the wives and the palaces and all of those children running around, there is jealousy as one little group forms around the other. And David's favorite of them all is this one Absalom, whom he loved so dearly. Absalom is strikingly handsome. And then David sees in his own home a murder take place as Amnon, one of his sons, lusts after his half-sister Tamar and rapes her forcibly and then thrusts her aside as a thing. Remember, these are crude and cruel days. And Absalom plots the death of his brother and kills him. And then he has to stay away for some time from Jerusalem. And then after several years have passed, he comes back into the city because Joab has arranged it. And this handsome man begins to think, my father is past his middle years now and is moving on and I could do such a better job as king. And he goes out early every morning and he sits at the gate. And when the people come there to transact their business and to ask for matters of judgment, he listens. And he says, oh, if only I had some authority here. How different things would be. It's too bad that my old father is so busy that he doesn't have time. And they look at him and the people begin to talk about him. And then the image merchants must have got a hold of him. Because he has 50 young men who run in front of him like a modern politician. And they shout, pave the way. Absalom is coming. And he has a beautiful gilded chariot. And the women all look at him and adore him. And the people all speak of how handsome he is. And then he begins to plot the rebellion and the overthrow of his own father. And David's seeds of iniquity begin to sprout. And they come up. That's the way it is with sin. If there was only one verse in the Bible that I believe, it would be that verse which says that the way of the transgressor is hard. It's hard. Well, the hearts of the people are stolen by this young man, Absalom. And finally, a rebellion takes place against David. And David has to flee 
his own city of Jerusalem, his own capital, he flees for his life, knowing that his son has organized thousands to come against him. And David, when he flees from the city's gates, goes away, and there is a little man that you always want to remember whose name is Shimei. Shimei runs along the side of the road, and he throws dust up in the air, and he throws stones at David. And he laughs at him and says, You bloody man of Belial, you have what's coming to you. And there is that Abishai, this general of David's, who says, let me go and take that dead dog's head off. And David says, let him alone. Let him alone. The Lord has put him there to curse me. David knows that it is the fruit of his own evil that has come about. There's an old saying in the political world, be careful who you step on as you go up because you're going to meet him on your way down. You're going to meet him on your way down. Shimei cursed David, and David took it as something from God because he knew that he was telling the truth. We ought to be thankful when we have a preacher like Nathan who will tell us the truth about ourselves, or even an enemy like Shimei, Listen to him and see if what he says is really the truth and if it is, learn from him. We could save our souls a lot of trouble, all of us. And David flees that place that day and goes. And as he goes, there must have been great bitter tears that dropped from his cheeks. David is brokenhearted for his own sins and for the sin of his son. And then this remarkable chapter that I read to you a moment ago, chapter 18, which tells of the great battle that takes place in this civil war. In the wood of Ephraim, how these opposing forces have locked, and this is very touching, it shows how much these people love David. David was going with his own troops and they said, no, we don't want you in this battle, they may kill you. If they kill 10,000 of us, what does it matter? And if we have to break and run and retreat, they won't come after us, they'll go after you. And we want you safe. You stay here in the city. You stay here in this city, and you send us more aid if we need it. Send out reinforcements if we need it. David knows that this will be the day in which this fateful conflict will be consummated, that wood in Ephraim. And you know the story that I read a moment ago, how that this young man Absalom, in that route that takes place, goes under a low-hanging tree and is either knocked from it or his head lodges in it, and then he is killed. And then his body is taken down and he is cast in an open pit, and one of the old Hebrew commentaries on it says that each of Joab's troops came by and cast a stone into the pit. And there was a great pile of stones there. Now Absalom had built for himself a great memorial, a tomb where he thought that he was going to be buried. But he was never placed in that tomb. 
but in dishonor and disgrace, he is buried there. And then that touching scene, when those runners are dispatched from the field, Joab realized that Absalom had to be killed. And Joab killed him. Sometimes we can let emotions control us when we ought to do something that requires firm and decisive action. And if Absalom had lived, it would have only been more trouble for David. And I don't blame Joab at this point at all. There comes a time when painful decisions have to be made, and this is one of them that is made here. And then the word comes back. Two runners are dispatched. You know, I've thought about this in connection with those men who've been released from Vietnam from the prisoners of war camps. I know a father and a mother. I baptized their son. He was an Air Force pilot shot down and missing in action. And I know how his father and mother prayed for his safe return. Is the young man safe? What about my boy? I know a man that I flew with who was shot down five days after I flew with him and he has been returned to his family. Commander F.A.W. Frank, he's a captain now. I saw in the, in the newspaper this week uh, an Air Force captain kneeling down and kissing the tarmac runway at an airport because he had arrived back again safe on American soil. Here David loves his boy in spite of all that that evil, rebellious son had done. And he waits eagerly for news from the battle, hoping against hope that he might be alive. The two runners are sent out in the way that they are. Joab had a favorite runner, Ahimahaz, and he didn't let him take the message at first. Because those old kings had a way, if they got good, bad news, they might kill the man who brought it. And so Joab wants Ahimaaz to stay back. He calls a black man from Ethiopia. And he says, you take the word. Well, the black man went one way, but Ahimaaz begs to take the news of the battle. And he is so insistent that Joab says, all right, go ahead. And so Ahimaaz strikes out. And he knows a shortcut, and he makes it first to the gates of the city. But he does not have the courage to tell David what happened. He says simply that the rebels have been put down. And when, when David says, what about the young man Absalom? He lies and said there was such confusion that I don't know what happened. He knew what happened, but he couldn't bring himself to tell the king. Then finally the black man arrived. And David asked him what happened. And the black man says, May all of your enemies and the enemies of God be as that young man is. And then David and the king, much moved, went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would God I had died for thee. Oh, Absalom, my son. My son, the trial of great sorrow he faced here. But David knew where to go in his sorrow 
he would go to God. He knew where to go in spite of his all abominable, all of his abominable sins. He went to God. He went to God and pleaded to God for forgiveness. As you and I need to go to God and plead with him for forgiveness. Happy is the preacher if he has only one David in a whole lifetime. Think of it, you wouldn't have David's psalms in this Bible if it hadn't been for Nathan, the preacher, in his sermon that day. But he so preached that David's words are worth keeping. His heart melted and he returned to God. But the consequences of his sins came. An old preacher once tried to teach his son about sin. The boy said, but they are forgiven, aren't they, Father? And he said, yes. But he said, I want to show you something. And he went out to the gatepost on the farm, and he took there some nails and drove them into the gatepost. And he said, now pull the nails out. And the boy pulled the nails away. And he said, you've got the nails and they're all gone, but the scars are still there. And sin has its scars, but with God there is mercy, and God can restore the years which the locusts have eaten. There is a word in Isaiah that David never got to see. It says, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. There is a word in the epistle of John to some early Christians that David never got to see that said if we are faithful to confess our sins, he is just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why is it that we have so little fellowship real concern and love for one another? John has the answer. If we walk in the light, the light of God's word, the light of the truth of the Lord Jesus, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins. David, in spite of all of his sins, was a man after God's own heart and whom God loved. And if God will forgive David for what he has done, then if I am willing to offer unto him a broken and a contrite heart, he will forgive me too, and he will forgive you, and he will make of us what we ought to be, saints, this was a saint who had gone wrong, but God's word through his prophet set him right again. That's the way it ought to be with church. That's the way it ought to be with worship. That's the way it ought to be when we read books, when we pray, is to keep our hearts close to him. Paul says in one place that he wanted every thought to be captive to the Lord Jesus. The other day when Dr. William L. Lane was here, he was describing to some of the students about the first experiment that he had ever made in physics in high school. 
He said that one of the physics teachers was teaching him about vibrations and sound, and he took two tuning forks, and he held one back, and he struck one tuning fork, and it was vibrating. And then he took the other tuning fork and brought it close, so close that it picked up the tremble and began to vibrate just as the other tuning fork. And Dr. Lane said the secret of Christian growth is to get in tune with Jesus Christ, to, some, to come so close to the Lord Jesus that you pick up his vibration and you show his love and his mercy and his purity and his faith. Let us stand in prayer. O Jesus, thou hast promised to all who follow thee that where thou art in glory, there shall thy servants be. And Jesus, we have promised to serve thee to the end. O give us grace to follow our master and our friend. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father, and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit our keeper and guide, be and abide with you all, now and forevermore. Amen. <laughs>